Welcome back to the Ulster Rugby Roundup, episode two of 2022. I'm Gareth Hanna, and joining me, as always, are Ulster Rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. All right. All good. And joining us this week is Ulster Rugby photographer extraordinaire Santa Lookalike, John Dixon. Hello, John. Welcome back. Happy New Year to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Santa. So we're here this week, obviously, to discuss. A defeat for Ulster at Toman Park, that in itself probably a sentence that isn't overly surprising given their recent record, although the exact circumstances of it probably make it one of the more disappointing defeats down there. We'll also look ahead to the second half of the European pool campaign. Are they still called pools now that they're the big 12 team things? They are still called pools. Okay, so the second half of the pool campaign. Pool and pool B, very, very adventurous, very uh, imaginative. So first of all, then... after like animals? (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, mate, but well, the name teams after animals now, so why not pools? That's what I ask you, Jonathan. The whale pool and the dolphin pool, that's what I want. You can pitch that for next year, mate. <laughs> it wouldn't be the most ridiculous thing about how it's all structured, to be honest. So, first of all, then, that defeat then at Toman Park. First of all, John, set the scene for us, because obviously it came off the back of two cancellations due to COVID-19. So what impact did that all have on the, the state of the pandemic as things stand? Did that have any impact in how Ulster prepared for the game or, or travel or, or training leading up to it or, or anything? Can you give us any, any insight as to how it was all impacted? Uh, really, to be honest, I really couldn't believe we lost that game. Uh, we were so much in control for long periods and then Munster did what they usually do in their fight back and, and they're, they've got a lot of heart, especially at home and to actually get back in the game into a position where they had a chance of winning the game was amazing in the first place. And then to eventually <laughs> score the try to actually win it um, and I'll send Ulster home with just a, a losing bonus point was was very disappointing. What what could have happened? I think there's no doubt that the, the COVID-19, no matter what anybody else says, definitely had a part to play in it. When you haven't got a game for two weeks um, over Christmas, and you're going into a tough interprovincial game in Limerick against a really good team uh, like Munster, and not have those preparation games, or not not have games that you could have played, uh, certainly will affect you. And I think that did happen, and it certainly happened. In the, and I think that's what happened in that last quarter. I think Ulster just either were tired or ran out of steam, or yeah. I don't know what you would say, but it was sef- definitely looked as if they. Uh, had, were lacking match fitness. Um, perhaps that's the the um, not the excuse, but the reason for it. Yeah. Well, Jonathan Dan didn't seem overly keen to sort of lean on that very heavily uh, and try and use that as a bit of a, a get out clause for for his team. Where do you think it went wrong for them? Is it just as simple as saying if it hadn't been for that and they'd been a bit sharper, they'd get over the line, okay? Or uh, is there is there more to read into it? Well, whenever you play 65 minutes or I suppose 55 minutes a man up with 65 minutes against 14 men and certainly in terms of the scoreboard anyway, you don't capitalise on it. There are going to be questions surrounding the management of a game and the tactics of a game, whether you did enough to hurt Monster Dynaman as opposed to the approach that you were taking against Monster when they had 15. 
like you say, Dan didn't want to use COVID as an excuse, sort of basically batted that question away. The areas that he were really looking at in terms of improvement were the execution yeah. um, of what they were doing. You can look at, you know, moments like the the crossing in the second half, the Thomas Ahern disrupting a couple of lineouts, the first half turnover as well in in the mall when they got the when they had got the line out and were mauling towards the line and Munster, I think it was Tag Byrne got the got the turnover. So there were quite a few moments like that where it was um just in terms of being that bit more clinical and taking advantage of the opportunities that were given to you against the 14 men. Um you can't put that down to sharpness, I suppose, even if Dan didn't want to, but I, like I know, obviously, from a couple of the questions that um, we got this morning, there's obviously a lot of people pointing the finger more in terms of the the plan than uh, the execution of it. Yes, and we will get on to those questions in a little minute. First, just in case anybody didn't read or hear Dan's quotes after the game, just a little bit of what he says was... Uh, Tactically, we were right. Strategically, we were right. It was in the execution of the tactics that we got it wrong. Whether it was choosing to do it one way or another, I think that's an area of the game we're developing and ability to make those nuanced decisions in the moment. The strategy that the guys were employing in the second half was working. We just needed to persist with it and make sure we did it correctly. John, a lot of people seem to be sort of, well, this is basically the crux of the of the issue for, for the fans, it seems, as to whether it was the tactics were wrong or whether it was the execution were wrong or I suppose there could be a little bit of both. What's, what's your thoughts on it? Well, in, in that first 15, 20-minute period, like at the start of the match, before the game started, there was the most horrendous hailstorm. I've never seen hail like it in my life. <laughs> it was bouncing off the grass. Good for uh, photographers. No, well, I, I ran for cover. Myself and the cameraman, who, who, uh, the TV cameraman in the corner, when it started coming down, it was actually hurting you when it was hitting you. It was that hard <laughs> and, so, and so large. So um, we ran into the under uh, and under the stand a wee bit, just where the, uh, the hail wasn't getting into you. And, and uh, we stood for about 15 minutes while it lasted. Uh, and the players hadn't just come out to start the warm-up at that time. And the next thing, then they come out onto the pitch and they wonder why the pitch had turned white. <laughs> So, look, the conditions weren't great, but they eased during the game. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was raining at times, and then the rain went off, and then it came back on again. And when it came on, it was heavy, and it was uncomfortable to play in and all the rest of it. But Ulster, for that first 15, 20 minutes, were excellent. And the yeah. Munster just looked, you know, out of sorts themselves. And I thought, you know... The game was in control. We scored a try from that. Uh, Rob scored a try from the line out. Our mall at that time was 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 looking strong, and and um, I knew that you know if we got kicking down into the corners, that, that was going to be a real threat for us. But we just didn't capitalise on it. You know, we just mm-hmm. didn't you know push the trigger when we needed to. And like I have a confession to make. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I didn't uh, even know Simon Zebo had been sent off. I didn't know. I, I was actually, you, when you're at the side of the pitch working uh, at a game like that live and you're sending pictures back live, your head's in your laptop and with the rain and what have you, I, I had my, I was trying to protect all my equipment while I was working <laughs> on it. You're concentrating and doing that. And I didn't even know they'd been sent off. I didn't even count the players on the pitch. So I was unaware of the whole, that whole situation and the Kieran Treadwell yellow card until I got home and watched it when I was doing the post-match edit on Sunday. So yeah. like, 
you know, it was hectic, it was fast, uh, and it was um, there was a lot of action going on. Um, but I think Ulster, at the time, were in control of the game. Even up to half time, um, they were well in control of the game. And I honestly thought we were going to win it. And um, and then just didn't perform as well in that second half. And Munster, whenever they smelled the actual chance of a victory, they just lifted their game. Yeah. Uh, and we just sort of went back into our shell a bit. And that's what I think happened. Yeah. So well, it's your job to take good pictures, John, not to know who's sent off. And uh, I'm sure there were plenty of good pictures taken as always. So those questions, Jonathan, then uh, regarding Dan's comments on the game plan. Philip Totten, first of all, uh, says, uh, as John points out, the weather was likely a factor in the decision to kick so much, but surely Ulster's usual game plan of keeping hold of the ball would have been much more beneficial. And Keno also asked, why are we playing this kicking game and not open and offloading rugby? Why did we stop playing when Zebu was sent off? We made basic error after basic error. So basically the crux of that was this was the game plan wrong? Do you think, Jonathan? Do you think Dan's wrong to sort of uh, push all the blame onto the execution of it? I think the game plan's wrong because they lost. The game Which plan is a good bottom line. Won. I mean, they didn't do enough to score enough points to win the game. The execution at the end of the game was poor in allowing Monster back into it, but they could and probably should feel that they should have had the game won by then. I think Alan O'Connor alluded to it afterwards. When you play, if a man for the other team gets sent off after 65 minutes and you're already winning, then you expect to win the game. I can understand what Dan's saying because very often whether a kick was the right time or the wrong time, the kick comes down to the execution of the kick. A kick is judged by its execution. Or sorry, the merits of a decision to kick are judged by its execution. It's one of the things about rugby that probably isn't particularly fair really in terms of judging the tactics but Dan like Dan's response to that question from myself about whether there was a need to change the plan from plan A to plan B and whether that was the sign of still developing as a team being able to do that on the field Mm. said to us anyway that he believed in the game plan and that it was the execution like he's the head coach yeah John, now McDonald, not to sort of labour the point too much, but now McDonald asked, was this a repeat of the Tigers game last year in terms of the kicking instead of holding on to the ball? How can Ulster get over these losses where they should be winning? I mean, as you said, John, I think, and I think everybody probably, all Ulster fans will have agreed that as soon as the sentinel off happened, well, you didn't know the sentinel off was happened, but as, as you saw the game ticking on anyway, there was a feeling that Ulster were going to get over the line, especially given their recent away wins that they've had, those ones in Leinster and Claremont. You've sort of, and we talked about it in podcast that the hope was that oh, this is a, a corner turned of sort of to have this belief now, maybe that little bit more know how and how to win at, at difficult venues. So you can probably understand fans' frustrations that there's maybe that feeling now that, okay, so th- that corner hasn't been turned after all. Is there still that lingering, um, is it a mentality issue? Is there, is there still that lingering thing and how to Ulster get over that? Or is it just a case of, well, they're not going to win every time? Uh, it's hard to say. It's a good question. It's one of those things that, you know, I think when a team goes down to 14 men, um, they tend to tighten themselves up and lift 
lift their own game to you know um, to compete harder, to compete um, with more aggression or something. I don't know. There's, there's something in that fourteen when you go down to fourteen men, you can, you know it's harder to play against sometimes, and I think that's probably what happened. Uh, and Munster certainly improved after uh, Zebo was sent off. Uh, and you could certainly in the second half, at the beginning of the second half, they came out that much, that bit more determined. Ulster didn't make that extra man count, um, and it's and, and that's you know that's to their detriment. You know they didn't. They, whenever you're in front, you know when a, a sin bin happens, whatever you need to make that extra man count, and that's something that I'm sure they'll be working on this week. Because come cup rugby, um, as it will be next week, it's you know. It's not a league game. Um, it's it's it, you have to win absolutely every game, and also have got themselves now in position next week of cementing a posi- position in the quarter final of a cup competition if they can actually yeah. execute away from home. And there's no reason why they can't. So, you know, it's a ment- yes, it is a mental thing. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen this, I've seen this stat used in like international rugby and I've seen it in the premiership as well I don't know if it exists in the ERC of like points per sin binning as it, as it were like so like I said we I don't I don't have the stat but just in terms of general impression I don't know if Ulster are at the top would be at the top end of the table in terms of making the most of opposition sin binnings but it's more of an impression than something that uh, I can back up with numbers because I can't find the stat in terms of the ERC. But, you know, you compare it to what Munster did. Like, whenever Ulster went down to 14, they very quickly ended up with a situation where they manipulated the play to the point where Mike Lowry was in a position where he was having to guard against two things so he either had to bite in and leave Mike Healy out wide and then Casey hits him with a brilliant pass and he scores or he had to uh, hang further out wide to guard Healy but then obviously there would have been more danger on the inside so Munster very quickly put an Ulster player into a no-win situation that was solely because they were defending a man down and if you were to look at the game I don't know if Ulster really did that Mm-hmm. with Munster at all and I don't did make the point that it is more difficult with a winger because they're obviously the furthest player away in that sense anyway um, but I would be really interested to know in general if Ulster make the most of sin winnings not just um, on Saturday mm, yeah it would be an interesting you know, it's an interesting thing because they know, I watched them in training you know practice both defending and attacking, they do they do it. Um, you know they do practice this um, every single week. They're a man down, so how to def- uh, you know get yourselves in the defensive line? Jared Payne takes them through several drills, which you know will help. And then from an attacking point of view, obviously how to exploit the to get space out wide. And, you know, it's something that they do practice. And maybe it's, a, as I say, going back to this mental thing, when it happens during a game, are they switched on quickly enough to exploit their um, their extra man? Yeah. You know, they had plenty of time, as it turned out, to actually do that, and they just n- never achieved it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, remember, you're a defending team, so you then know what you're supposed to do to counter that. So 
there's a, it's a very interesting strategies in play, both in attack and defence. So you have to say on the day, Monster, <laughs> Monster out fought them and I played them. Yeah. So if uh, if the issue was implementation of tactics and maybe those nuanced decisions on the on the field, as Dan was saying, another one of Kino's list of questions was uh, why don't Ulster have a strong captain in the team? Obviously, Alan O'Connor's captaining the team in the absence of Ian Henderson. John, is that unfair? I mean, a captain is about the respect that they command on the field. And I don't think any of Ulster's players would point the finger towards Alan O'Connor's captaincy. He's a hugely respected figure in the squad. Like The thing to remember about this is there's obviously, from a fan base, when a side loses a game that they shouldn't lose. And Dan even said this himself, Like this was an opportunity that was let slip for our results that the subtext being Ulster fans have been hoping for since 2014. Like nobody wants to continue to hear, oh, Ulster haven't won a Limerick since 2014. It's been five, six, seven, and eight, eight years. So there's a huge amount of emotion there, understandably, from a fan base. But you do also have to look at the bigger picture. So like Ulster's management of this situation was poor. But it's the same group of players that managed situations against Claremont to win there yeah. four weeks ago. You know, there was a time in Claremont when you looked at that and said Ulster of old would have lost that game once Claremont came back into it. Mm. And because they won that game, then everybody says, oh, Ulster have turned a corner and they do this now. But... <laughs> the fact of the matter is every game isn't an 80-minute referendum on how good or bad a team is. It is. is it is, Jonathan. Of, sorry. From uh, some people in the industry's perspective, obviously it is. But um, the fact of the matter is that a curve of development is not solely a straight line. It's not one side of a mountain. There are ups and downs. Yeah, This is a down, but... Does what they did on Saturday in terms of game management negate what they did in terms of game management against Claremont? Mm -hmm. Or are they just two parts of a larger whole that makes up where a team is? Yeah, I think that's probably a fair point, isn't it, John? That there's uh, it's it's not a straight trajectory. There's going to be ups and downs, and you just hope that the the downs don't come on the the most important occasions, which Saturday wasn't. Yeah, Johnny, you must have got a new book or something to read over Christmas. That's very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about the kind of stuff I was saying before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I think going back to the question about Alan O'Connor's leadership, you know, yeah. for me, it's it's not it's not even a, a question to worry about because um, I think Alan O'Connor is a superb leader and um, a great captain and very much respected by everybody in the squad. So that doesn't even come into it. Um, next best man from Hendy would be Alan O'Connor any day. So, um, you know, but and Johnny's right. There are times whenever a team, like it's, in the perfect world, you'd be in an upward trajectory all the time. It just doesn't happen. Uh, you will have little slips and what have you, mistakes. And, I, and this is exactly what this was at the weekend. Unfortunate for Ulster, it was a slip. And they should have won it. Um, they didn't. Now they move on. And the, the good thing about this is, boys, seriously, 
is you know that game's now over. You can I can assure you that Ulster aren't even in the meeting rooms this morning, even discussing it. They're now looking at Northampton this week. So that game's in history. It's gone. Now they have a week. This week ahead has now been um, targeted and they're working on their strategies for this week. Hopefully they'll take the, the learning of last week into it. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's, the, that's the reality of it. You know, it's gone. It's history now. Move on. Yep. There's another referendum on uh, Sunday. So <laughs> all, all can change. Uh, so obviously... A player who gets, well, I would say his fair share or more than his fair share of criticism on the, the general uh, balance of things is probably Billy Burns. And there was more of that after Saturday's performance, plenty of, of questions over over Billy. Stephen McCormick asks us, who is more key to Billy's performance? John Cooney, who obviously went off after 20, 23 minutes, I think it was, or Stuart McCluskey, who obviously wasn't there at all. Is that a a fair way to look at uh, at Billy's performances in terms of when he's with those guys? Well, I think you can say that about anyone in the team. Yeah. You know, the team plays an awful lot better when Cooney and McCluskey are there. Obviously, now I understand completely what Stephen's saying because 9, 10 and 12 is a sort of mini unit, if you like. Um, in terms of who they miss more, I mean, if you look at the way the game changed, whenever, sorry, the way the Northampton game changed whenever McCluskey went off, looking at how Ulster were attacking and how, or how dangerous Ulster looked before the injury and how dangerous they looked after, I think you're not going to get many a better example of how important a player is to a team. Yeah. The, um, in terms of McCluskey, obviously, if you then couple that with um, going up against Munster for 65 minutes and 14 men and not being able to make enough headway to force a try against 14 men, that leads into that idea as, or feeds into that idea as well, just how important McCluskey is. Cooney's obviously massively important as well, but personally, I think also almost a very different team without McCluskey. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's an awful lot of players even in Irish rugby that have such a discernible, there's such a discernible shift when they're not there for a provincial team. Even on the other hand, when you look at the Munster team, um, the played on, on Saturday night, did Casey and Crowley at halfbacks, you know, that they, they are playing there for the first time, I think together in, a, in an interpro. So that was a, an area that, you know, I thought we would target more. Just, you know, everybody's saying about, you know, Billy Burns and they're criticising Billy and they're criticising other people. You know, it's just, you know, that and playing people out maybe out of position a bit. Well, Munster had the same problems as well, you know, with them um, in their camp so that they had to adjust their team around with what, with what they had. Um, and it was interesting to see Rory Scal, you know, just uh, how he went to 12 with, with Farrell because they... It's exactly the same situation that Ulster had. Mm. You know, obviously more experience there with that, with with um, Roy Scannell being, uh, um, you know, a player of, of a lot of uh, 150 caps on the night. Mm-hmm. So it was a big game for him. Obviously, the, the centre issue was prominent in the team selection because if you look at the team that Ulster were able to name, that was the only thing that looked particularly unusual, despite all the COVID um, 
disruption over the past two weeks. Like, I think if you were to say Ulster's first choice four centers, if you like, or Luke Marshall, James Hume, Stuart McCluskey, and Stuart Moore, you'd be hard pressed to find a better group of four centers yeah. in the league than those four as a whole when they're all fit. Um, Luke Marshall's obviously been out for a long time. We know McCluskey's going to be back by the end of the month. And then you lose Stuart Moore from that. And it is a relatively big change because, you know, the last time somebody that wasn't McCluskey or Moore played 12 for Ulster was going back prior to the pandemic. Like it's been one of the two of them. Mm. Um, for that's that's nearly two years now. So, yeah, it, like it is a big change, but like it's as John said there, like if you compare the two teams on paper, Ulster were much closer, not to their first choice team because of all the injuries and everything, but an awful lot closer to the team that they had been putting out in Europe than Munster would, would have been to the ideal team that they would be putting out in Europe. Obviously, their team for Europe was entirely changed because of their South African quarantine situation. So whether you think Saturday's result and performance then was a, a blip on an overall upward trend or something more significant that links into uh, a fairly general question from Stu Stephen, who I think is another of our uh, first-time questioners, hopefully long-time listener. Uh, welcome, Stu. He wants to know, how do you rate Ulster's progression under Dan? And he follows it up by saying that was a monster B or C team, with the exception of a few uh, players and yet Ulster never looked like winning it so I would uh, deduce from the tone of that bit bigger that uh, Stu's maybe not overly convinced or maybe not 100% sure on the overall trajectory of Ulster at the minute what what would you say well I I, I don't I disagree with him um, I think that Ulster uh, have, a, have improved measurably under Dan McFarland, and that there has been very steady progress. That, uh, albeit the Rainbow Cup was a complete disaster last season. Um, up until then, Ulster had had a reasonable year, and then the Rainbow Cup came, and it was just apps. No one was interested in playing it. No one was interested in any of it. And Ulster, as a result, didn't perform well on the pitch. And then this season round, maybe we won our first four games away from home. We've beaten the first, uh, or won our first two games in the uh, European Cup. So I can't see where, apart from the Ospreys away and obviously now Munster away, two blips um, where he can start saying that, you know, there's no upward progression. I think again, it comes back to this idea of taking the emotion of the big defeats out of it, which is very difficult for people to do. But to talk about the progress under Dan McFarland, the progress under Dan McFarland has obviously slowed from the first two seasons because it was always going to in the same way that anything that starts from a lower bar. We've talked about this loads in the podcast. Like it's Monster have been in the same situation. So also were in a position when Dan McFarland came in that they were not really competing for trophies. They did not qualify for the knockout stages of either competition that they were in in the season before Dan McFarland. Dan McFarland has come in and I'm not saying last year doesn't count, but with the exception of that strange European season, they have made the European knockouts in two of those years. They'll probably 
make the European knockouts this year. Admittedly, it's the last 16 rather than the last eight. And they've been, over that period, the second best team to Leinster in the competition, I think you could argue. There were none of those things before Dan McFarland came in for a number of years. But the rate of progress will always slow because the closer you get to the top, the harder it is to continue to make progress. So if you're the seventh best team in the league, to go to the seventh best team in the league to the second best team in the league is easier than to go from the second best team in the league to the first best team in the league. And it doesn't seem like that should be the case. You know, to get sick to leapfrogs five or six teams compared to uh, being able to leapfrog one. But it is because the final step is the hardest one to take. And that's where I think fans get frustrated because they can see the progress. And, you know, we've talked about it before, like an awful lot of teams in this league that have won the championship have done so in three years because it has been a steady curve of progress. But how good Leinster are, I think, has skewered that in a lot of ways because you get to a point and then it's like, how do you topple Leinster? Mm. And it feels reductive to bring every season down. You know, there's so many games in a season and it feels reductive to boil it down to, are they good enough to beat Leinster? But it's a far bigger hurdle to overcome than it was to uh, get back to the level that they are now. Yeah. And it's just, it's melding the gap between expectations and the reality of the situation because the expectation is that once the team's getting better they're just going to keep getting better at the same rate and improve at the same rate so it's you know you get back to the semi-finals and the next year you get to the final and then the natural assumption is that the next year you're going to win it but mm. that's not how sport works yeah. another way I look at it Johnny is to whenever you are going off to a game no matter if it's a home or away game in your heart and in your mind, do you actually think your team's going to win? And if your answer to that is yes, every single time, then you've, you know, I think that, like I went down to Munster at the weekend and I was quite convinced that Ulster could have the, the team with them now that could beat them in, in Thorne Park. So, you know, going to Northampton next week, do I think we're going to win? Yes, I do. And, and, and that's the belief that a coach and a team should have when you as a supporter. And that's where I that's where I base it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I'm not I'm not dismissing the emotions of the fans or the frustrations of the fans by by any means. I just think it's a it's a completely different prism through which to view a team because you can look at the other sort of staging posts of is a team improving, things like winning in France, things like winning in Leinster. You know, Baker says about going over to England and being confident. That's because this team has gone over and they've beat Harlequins, they've beat Bath, they've beat Leicester. Um, Admittedly, in the second tier of competition, they beat Northampton even, um, you know, less than a year ago. But the players that are coming through winning Irish International Cups, these are all signs of progression. And I think it is just a matter of something which is very difficult to do when you are as emotionally invested in something as Ulster supporters are emotionally invested in this team is to step back and see more of the overall picture rather than be up in arms over a loss like Saturday's because a loss like Saturday's is so frustrating for a supporter base in the same way as it's so frustrating for a team because they should have won. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I ask you, sorry, one question, Johnny. Edinburgh are leading this, you know, the, the Edinburgh going really well at the minute. If you were to put Ulster up against Edinburgh, who do you think would win the game? I like, I think Ulster would win, but yeah, I have been very impressed with what Edinburgh have been doing because if you look at like Edinburgh for me, or it's easy to say now because they went top at the weekend, but like Edinburgh have been the surprise package all year because they've retained an awful lot of that steeliness that they had under Cockrell, but really added to it as well. When you're looking at the league now, it's kind of difficult to get too much of a gauge because everybody's played different amounts of games. But like Glasgow, Ospreys, and Edinburgh have all won more games than they've lost. And that's on top of obviously also Leinster and Munster haven't done the same. So You've got a good sort of, at the minute anyway, you've got a good sort of six-way battle for that top four. Mm-hmm. Top four being all important. But, like, it, it's an interesting point that you make, John, because, like, an awful lot on this podcast, and especially this season after the Connacht result, you get people asking, you know, are Ulster in a better position than Connacht? Or, sorry, are Connacht in a better position than Ulster, I suppose, is a more accurate way of putting it. And... I can understand why people think that because Connacht are playing um, this brand of rugby that's being talked about by all the like national media outlets and they beat Ulster. But like they still lose as many games as they win. And Ulster don't do that. Like it's I don't want to say that it's like you get used to the success, but I do think people find it very easy to overlook just the very high percentage of games that Ulster win. Like there aren't an awful lot of teams in rugby that probably have won the percentage of games that Ulster have won. And when I say an awful lot, I mean, you know, you're in the top 25%, so say like that. But it's very easy, I think, to move on to be like, I'm what's next, I'm what's next, I'm what's next. And not, uh, Mm -hmm. I suppose, appreciate the progress that has been made. Like I say, I completely understand why these frustrations come to the boil after a game like that, but there is just for me anyway. There's been so there's been an awful lot of evidence of uh, of progress under McFarland, which was, I suppose, the question that sparked what has now become a long conversation about that. <laughs> yeah, it is as you say. Though, like I just think I do understand fans' frustrations or fans who maybe start to question things. I guess because they're fans and they are so emotionally invested that probably a lot of, like, obviously I'm a massive Liverpool fan, and a lot of my spare thinking time is taken up by thinking about Liverpool and thinking, are we going to win the league this year? Are we going to win the Champions League this year? And then if they don't, it's so disappointing. And they're probably not going to because they're not going to beat Man City. And that is so disappointing. And then you start thinking, well, like, why are we not good enough? Like, what's what needs to change? They need to sign better players. They need to start spending more money. And it's a bit like... Speaking of, on behalf of my thoughts on it, I know sometimes I can be a bit unhinged and just starting to think like you just go off on one and thinking this is terrible. And but that's part of the fun of being a sports fan. I think fans should be like that, and fans should be allowed to be like that to a certain extent. Obviously, not if they're going to be like giving abuse out to the players or whatever, but you I should know, be allowed to get carried like... away because yeah, it's all part it, of the my, fun. It's my job not to. Exactly, exactly. Like that's, and that's, that's yeah. literally part of my job is not to do that. Yeah, so that's like, the difference. I exactly. don't have to cover Spurs, so I can watch Spurs play Morecambe and at halftime be like, why have this? Why has this team not sold nine of these players? <laughs> How are these guys getting a living? This makes exactly. absolutely no sense. But if Ulster were to play a first half like that, I wouldn't be like, why is Dominic Farley not getting rid of 13 of these players? This makes no sense because... 
yeah. it's two different things. Yeah, exactly. There's a level, there's a level of realism that, um, or pra- sorry, realism is the wrong word. There's a level of pragmatism. And also a divorce from the emotions of it too. Yeah, yeah. So there is a, a level of pragmatism that is lost in fandom. The word fan coming from the word fanatic, which has a certain implication of not always being rational. But yeah, and rightly so, uh, I say. So uh, yeah, a, a really interesting point, Stu. Thank you very much for your uh, your first question in the podcast. Uh, a good one. And um, yeah, very, very interesting thoughts on uh, on progression, what it means to be a fan and life in general. This should be a philosophy podcast at this stage, boys. Um, you guys have been reading some serious books over Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> So before we move on to the game this weekend, just very, very briefly, uh, I do like to encourage some sort of positivity. Was there anything that you could pick out from Saturday that uh, impressed you? You give you reason for optimism looking ahead or is that too much of a stretch? Dom was actually asked this, this very question and I'll give you his response. Okay. No. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> very good. So saying. <laughs> very good well in that case we best just move on uh, to the next referendum on sunday which is northampton saints away sunday at quarter past three obviously ulster a couple of wins from their two european games so far so all looking fairly rosy worth noting as well that four teams have already come away from northampton victorious this season all of them scored at least 30 points saracen london Irish, rassing put 45 points on them leicester 55 so given as well that uh, northampton's campaign has involved two defeats so far is it reasonable to go here fully expectant john of an ulster win um given the the, maybe the relative focus and intensity that you could understand may be differing from the two teams? Well, I'll say this. I, I would like Northampton to put out a strong team at the weekend and take it seriously because that will guarantee that Ulster turn up and <laughs> go out there and win the game. Uh, that's If, if, if uh, Northampton put out a weakened team, then I... I would hope that Ulster, you know, don't just think they're going to go through the motions. I think they have to go there, they have to win. And if uh, I know a lot of people say, get the win, get the win first, and then look for a bonus point. But seriously, win with a bonus point is what I'd be looking for. Um, <laughs> but having said that, <laughs> you look what happened last week, uh, last weekend um, at, at Kingston Park, and they played Newcastle Falcons. And they put 44 points on them. Yeah. You know, they, they turned up last week, Northampton. They sorted themselves out. Um, they've been playing a bit better re- of you know, in recent weeks. Uh, and I think this is why that game last week, weekend, uh, down in Limerick, was so important to Ulster because they needed a game after having, you know, the Christmas period off mm-hmm. with COVID. And it's so important to have played that game and get as many players on the pitch as possible. Um, because going into this game, which is the most important game of the season, there's no doubt about it. It's an away game, and it's an away game they can win. Mm. And that's the way I'm looking at it. And and I think that that the uh, they can bring back the points from this here. Then they can, you know, Claremont coming to Belfast. Well, hopefully that comes goes ahead that game, and uh, and we'll have a big 
uh, game in Belfast to look forward to near, uh, near the end of the month, you know. Yeah, and fingers crossed that the French government have allowed the travel between uh, the UK and France. So fingers crossed that game will go ahead as planned. Johnny, ahead of these two games, is it fair to expect that those two-legged last 16 ties are probably not going to be two-legged in the reality of things, things making a top four finish for Ulster all that more important to get home advantage and therefore two wins from these two games? Yeah, I think so, because if you're looking at the weeks in the season before that, either there's going to be a serious crunch in the URC if they try and play Europe at any other time. I'm not saying play Europe during um, the Six Nations, because obviously they wouldn't do that, but we mentioned last week that there is precedent for moving weeks of the league Mm. um, in favour of European games, which would obviously just create a further sort of squeeze when there's so many games left to be made up during the Six Nations so I think the only sensible option that they can take is to play the games assuming that they are going to play them the games that they postponed when they cancelled other games is to have them in that uh, that first week in April now that's not ideal because you're then you're basically deciding your quarter or your last 16 ties one week before you're going to play them which is mm-hmm. Not great from logistics for teams, fans, broadcasters, so on and so forth. So let's not uh, let's not think that this is some kind of uh, fix everything solution. But it might end up being the best option. But like I look back, you know, at that Gloucester game last year that Ulster should have won, and then it's only then when you think about, you know, had they won that, then they would have been in the last sixteen, even though they lost before to Toulouse. So everyone was thinking about how difficult it was going to be because they still had to go to Toulouse. It's almost like the year, you know, when they had Bordeaux and Exeter and they're like, oh, you know, we need bonus points. And then it turned out that they just needed to win. It's like, there's so many possibilities and potential for your destiny to be taken out of your own hands here with, with COVID or with travel or whatever. So the Northampton game being first is a huge opportunity for Ulster just to be able to put up enough points on the board that no matter what happens in that Claremont game, or no matter what happens around that Claremont game, is probably a better way to describe it, isn't going to potentially knock Ulster out. Mm. That sort of thing, you know? And yeah, it's like I say, it's just, it's just that it's, it should be that big lesson from Gloucester of, you know, just mm. focus on the now more so than ever. I know it sounds like a cliche, but in the pandemic, it's actually not. Like, focus on the next week because there's no guarantee that you're going to get the opportunity the week after to play and book your place in the knockouts at home. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a crucially important game indeed. Last week, John, obviously Ulster had 14 players on the unavailable list. I take it we, well, the press conference is tomorrow and I'm sure the question will be asked whether or not we'll be told anymore. Uh, not sure, but do you have any knowledge to give us, John? Anybody we're expecting to come back in from those there might, there might be a few coming back in, yeah. <laughs> Go on. I'm not telling you. <laughs> well, I would, I would expect there would be maybe a couple off that list at least available for this week coming. I mean, the natural, the natural journalistic question is, are we talking the internationals or not the internationals? <laughs> I think. <laughs> because obviously, you know, there's a couple of big, there's a couple of big names on that uh, on that absent list at the minute. Do you care to guess for us, Johnny? You're in a free position to uh, 
to throw out names when Baker is not? <laughs> um, well, I suppose, you know, Stockdale was talked about as being after Christmas, for now after Christmas. Oh, gee, for um, sure. McCluskey, Mate, player of 2022, it should be remembered, Jacob Stockdale. Exactly. He's... Uh, it's a bit. It's a big weight to carry into the new year, being uh, being Gareth no player player of the year. But there we are. Um, McCluskey, I think it said this would game would probably be a week too soon, and then you've got the Henderson foot injury. It was just by the nature of when it happened and what happened afterwards, probably hasn't been talked about as much as it normally would. Because mm. I mean, those are three. Those are three huge players, obviously. Yeah. Well, it will be very interesting to see. And if we do learn any more at Tuesday's press conference, we will, of course, let you know online and in the Belfast Telegraph. So to sort of come full circle and go back to Dan's comments after the the Monster game, which uh, we said we'd moved on from, but here we are. The Weekly Donut is bringing us back to look ahead sort of thing. So if Dan is right in what he's saying, that it was the implementation, not the tactics, we'll not go over it all again. But... Does that mean, because, as Donald points out again, he was reluctant to give COVID-19 disruption as a reason, therefore, is he saying it's the player's fault? And off the back of that, are we expecting to look at changes in key positions, and he includes in brackets number 10, uh, ahead of the Northampton game? That does seem a reasonable deduction from what Dan's saying, doesn't it, John? I I don't... I, I completely understand the premise, but I don't know if... I don't think Dan would ever have that pointed towards an individual. I think when Dan talks about things like that, just from my experience of talking to him, to him that he's talking about a collective, uh, he, he obviously will have opinions on individual performances as well. But to my memory, when I've been there, he's never either subtly or outright been talking about an individual when he says that kind of thing. Um Look, to be honest, even in my own opinion, I think if you look at the faith that he's had in Billy Burns, the faith that the organization has had in Billy Burns, mm-hmm. um, irrespective of, as you pointed out earlier, sometimes he does get uh, an amount of criticism from supporters. Like, it would be a massive, massive break in previous policy for him not to start this game if he's fit. Mm-hmm. Because bearing in mind, he looked like he was struggling with the groin through it at least the last 20 minutes. And you could hear... I don't, know, I don't know who it was, but you could hear it on the ref mic, somebody saying, come on, Billy, we need you. Okay. Um, because, you know, if he's not playing 10, then Madigan was listed as unavailable this week. Laurie's been playing 15. Um, you know, t- yeah. 10, 10, let's be honest, is not an area where Ulster have the depth that they have in other positions. No. No, so uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see. And if he doesn't start, uh, as you say, it could be down to to injury rather than Dan's preference. While we're on halfbacks and injuries, do we know any more at this stage, or are we waiting for the press conference to uh, hopefully find out more about John Cooney and probably not find out more about John Cooney? <laughs> what are you trying to say about the level of uh, injury detail given an Ulster press conference? <laughs> um, again. It will come as a surprise to no one, but I ain't no doctor. Um, <laughs> despite, the, despite the amount of reading that I may or may not have done over Christmas, no doctor. Uh, <laughs> but a calf muscle, if that's what it looked like, is a tricky enough thing. Yeah. Especially for a player like John Cooney, a, dyna- you know, a dynamic player who also has to kick. Mm. 
Um, a calf injury wouldn't be great now. Wouldn't be ideal. So we'll wait and see, and we'll keep our fingers crossed on that one. John, then, if we're thinking Ulster probably need to win both of these games to be assured of what I'm going to go out on a limb and say will be home advantage in the last 16, you'd be confident of it, wouldn't you? You're yes, a positive thinker, John. Yeah, I would be. And I guess I think, I think that we can do it. I also agree with what Johnny said totally about Dan wouldn't throw anybody under a bus. It'll be a collective um, situation that he'd be looking at. Um, and as I say, they'll have forgotten about that match. As I said before, they've forgotten about it, uh, uh, parked that one, and now they're into this week. And it'll be all looking ahead as to who's available and who's fit and who'll be able to, to play what role against uh, Northampton Saints at Franklin's Garden. So that'll be the emphasis now for the next few days. Yeah, yeah, it will once again be a very interesting team selection when we see it on Friday at 12 noon. And um, we'll just keep our fingers crossed that there are no more complications to uh, the Ulster season and that uh, both of these European games go ahead as planned, which, as we say, it has been announced that all uh, all systems are a go as, uh, as we speak on the plans to play both of both of these games and all the remaining pool fixtures as is planned. So fingers crossed, we shall be back next week. Uh, between these two European fixtures, to look back at a, a big win over Northampton and to look ahead to what will also be a very important game at home to Clermont. But for this week, from Jonathan Bradley, John Baker Dixon and myself, Gareth Hanna, thanks very much for listening. Just tied it up myself again like last week. That's it again. Your last word, Merchant, that's what it is.